Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Uh, Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 this morning. As we continue our study in the faith-filled church, For more than 20 years, uh, Professor Edwin Keedy of the Pennsylvania Law School used to start his first class by putting two figures on the board. He would put on the board four and two, and he then would ask his class in that first day, what's the solution? And so one student would say six, another would say two, and to both of these answers, he'd say, no, that's not it. Then a group of them would collectively say eight. But Keedy, after each answer, would shake his head and point out their fundamental error. He said, all of you, in giving me your answers, have failed to ask the key question. And the key question is, what is the problem? He said, gentlemen, unless you know what the problem is, there is no way that you could possibly find the solution. You know, how much more could that be said of the world in which we live today? We hear it all the time about the problems we face. The question goes out, how do we solve fill in the blank? How do we solve racism? How do we solve global warming? How do we solve the fact that certain aspects of history are offensive? How do we solve, and the list goes on and on. Man has always been trying to solve the problems they face. But as a whole, we've entirely missed the point and failed to ask the most fundamental question of all, what is the problem? Well, according to the Bible, the fundamental fundamental problem that we face, as one preacher paraphrased it, is not being out of harmony with our heritage or our environment, but it is, in fact, being out of harmony with our Creator. And that is what Paul draws our attention to this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He draws our attention to the fundamental problem of mankind. And once we recognize man's fundamental problem, it is then and only then that we can see the glory and the majesty of God's magnificent solution, which he gives to us in this passage in verses 4 to 10. And just as it was important for the Ephesians to know, it is important for us to know that God's magnificent solution to man's problem was not just a one-time judicial act of forgiveness, although it is that. And that is awesome, that is marvelous, that is uh, incredibly uh, gracious of God, but it is more than just a one-time act of forgiveness. It is also the very same power that God used to save us is the very same power that God continually gives to us after salvation in order for us to live the Christian life. You know, there are some in the church today that would believe that salvation is nothing more than a fire escape from hell. But aren't you glad that God wants us to know that there is so much more to the story of your salvation than just that? Not only did God save you from hell 
but he also is right now at work in you for a purpose. And that's Paul's main point in this passage this morning. God wants us to know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raised you from the dead and is that very same power that has called you to the purpose of bringing glory to God in a lost and dying world. Now that is a humbling reality. That God would take sinners like me and like you and call us as his body to represent him to a lost and dying world. Now, it's not often that I stop in the middle of an introduction, uh, but I will this morning to recognize this reality, and it is that as a preacher, there are certain passages in the Bible that when you come to, you're just like, I don't know how to choose words for this. Because it's your goal as a preacher to, to help people to lift their eyes off of their everyday situation and to see God for who he is. But there are some things that God has done that you're like, you know what, I can try, but I cannot adequately find the words in any human language to describe what it is that God has done in the work of salvation. You look at the world and all the amazing things that God has done, and God has created our amazing world and everything that fills it, and God has created the universe that surrounds our world, and it is amazing. It is unimaginable that God would be able to do all the things that he has done, from, from the galaxies which extend light years away to the depths of the ocean that, that contains creatures that we don't even know about yet, because we as humans are limited in our ability to even know what is here on our earth. And all those things are wonderful and amazing, but all of those things pale in comparison to the reality of our salvation. And the Bible tells us that our salvation is so great that even angels pause and stop and lean in to learn what it is that God is doing. And so I recognize this morning as we get into our passage that I cannot adequately describe your salvation to you. So what we're going to do is we're going to go before the Lord in prayer and ask that he would do this. That despite our inability to articulate what God has done, that God would show you in your heart the amazing, glorious power that he has revealed through the work of his salvation. Dearly Father, as we enter into this passage this morning, we do recognize that we are limited in our ability to articulate your truth, but Father, your Holy Spirit is not limited by that same ability. And Father, as we look into Ephesians chapter 2 and see the great work that you have done for us and the power that that enables us to live our Christian life, uh, that you uh, would impress upon our hearts the majesty of, of what you have done for us and that that would motivate us to leave here this morning and to uh, serve you throughout our week. Father, that you would expose to us our need for you. And Father, that you would help us as we leave here to, to put that need uh, into real faithful dependence on you. Father, we love you and we pray that you would guide us this morning and pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. So with that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 
It says, In you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this morning we will consider the great work of salvation, which is the power of God to deliver us from death, to resurrect us to life in Christ, and to empower us and to enable us to live a new life for Christ. This is the great work that God has done on our behalf. But first, Paul recognizes that if we're going to do anything with the knowledge of the power that God has for us, we first have to understand where we came from. Not just that God saved us, but what he saved us from. And so first we must consider the former power of death that God, or not that God had, but that sin had before God saved us. Before God in his great power saved us, we were under the dominion and the power of death. And Paul describes this for us in the verses we just read in verses 1 through 3. Now, in order to understand what exactly Paul is trying to communicate, we got to go back to what Pastor Brandon communicated last week and recap that. Because um, in Paul's eloquent use of language, uh, after three weeks of going through the book of Ephesians, we're actually only in our second sentence, not even completed our second sentence of Ephesians. We are halfway through Paul's second sentence in the book of Ephesians. <laughs> Uh, the first sentence runs from chapter 1, verse 1, down to chapter 1, verse 14. The second one starts in verse 15 of chapter 1 and goes through verse 4 of chapter 2. And so if we're going to start halfway through a sentence, we've got to go back to the beginning of the sentence to see what Paul is talking about. And so he tells us in verse 15, he says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened and that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And so he says in the first part of the sentence, I want you to understand and grow in the knowledge of the grace of God. And I want you to understand what is the exceeding greatness of God's power. And then he goes on a little tangent, which is a very purposeful tangent. He says, I want you to know the greatness of God's power, which, by the way, is the same power that God used in order to raise Christ from the dead. 
the same power that I want you to understand is the same power that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, it's that power that could not allow Christ to be contained by death, but Christ defeated that which in our experience is the final say, death itself. And by the power of God, Jesus raises from the dead and is elevated above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So Paul says, I want you to understand the power of God, which is the power that raised Christ and gave him a name which is above every name. And it's that very same power when it found you, he says in verse two, this is the first thing he says in verse two, that when this power found you, you were dead. That's how God found us. He found us dead. Now, all of us who know the Lord as our personal Savior, when we hear that, we say, yes, that's absolutely true. But we never want to glaze over the fact that there might be some here today uh, that are unsure of where they stand before the Lord. And so maybe there are some that are asking that question, what do you mean I was dead? I mean, I got up this morning, I ate breakfast, I got in my car, I drove here, I'm here, I can hear what you're saying, what do you mean that I am dead? Because this is the former condition of every single Christian. Every single Christian was born into this world dead. And this is the current situation of everyone who is not in Christ. They are dead. And Paul says, this power of God, when it found you, you were dead. Well, in Paul's theology, being dead means something very specific. And he defines it for us here in verse 1. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. To be dead is the contrast of what Paul's favorite phrase is throughout all of his epistles. To be dead is the opposite of what Paul talks about again and again, which is to be in Christ. Paul is not saying that you are physically dead. He is saying that you are spiritually dead without hope because you are without Christ. And he says that we are dead in a very specific way, you are dead in trespasses. And he gives us both the cause and the effect of our deadness. He says you're dead, first of all, here's the cause of your deadness. You are dead because you have trespassed. The word trespass means to violate the will and the law of God. When the word trespass is used in the gospel, what it refers to is the acts of wrongdoing which we have committed. So Paul says you are dead in a very specific way in that you are without Christ and you have violated God's law and that has caused something to be true about you and that is that you have sinned. The word that he uses for sin means to miss the mark. It was originally used for archery. Uh, an archer would take his arrow, he would 
uh, put it up to his bow and he would pull it back and he would shoot for the target. And if he missed, he had erred. He had sinned. He had missed the target. And so in Paul's theology, to be dead means to be without Christ. And without Christ, you have violated God's law and you have missed the mark. Well, what mark have I missed? That brings us to the next question. Well, to know the mark that we have missed, we've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, which is often the way it is, right? We've got to go back to the beginning in order to understand uh, what it is that the biblical authors are communicating to us. But God tells us exactly what the mark is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. After God had made man, it says in Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the mark that God set up in the very beginning when he created man. And he said to man, I have made you in my image. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to have dominion over the earth. And just as I, God, have created the universe and I rule justly and I rule righteously and I rule well over everything, I want you to have dominion over this small planet earth. And I want you mankind, to treat earth like I treat the universe. Well, we know that in Genesis chapter 3, after given that mandate, what Adam chooses to do is he says, you know what, I don't want to treat the earth the way God treats the earth. I want to do things my way. And so he turned from God, he chose his own way, and in violating God's law, Adam became dead. And every person after him has failed to live up to the standard, which is to put on display the image of God. And ever since Adam, we all have missed the mark of putting on display who God is. That's the mark. The mark is to put on display the perfect holiness the perfect justice, the perfect righteousness of God. To which some might say, but I do good things. <laughs> to be dead, right? Doesn't that mean that I am incapable of doing anything good? I do good things. I can't possibly face the same condemnation as terrorists or adulterers, can I? But notice in this passage that Paul is not saying that every person is as evil as they could be. He is saying, though, that everyone is dead. And although this is a morbid thought, think of it this way. Imagine that you were to walk into a room full of dead bodies. Some of them stink worse than others. Some of them are more decayed than others. Some of them have more flesh. Some of them have less flesh. But if I were to ask you the question, which of these corpses is more alive than the others, what would you say? 
hopefully you would, also, you would say, well, they're all dead. It doesn't matter how decayed they are, how bad they smell. The truth of all of them is that they are dead. And that is what Paul is saying. He's not saying all of us are decayed to the same degree. He's saying you're dead and that's what matters. <laughs> you have violated God's law and there is no way that a dead thing can accomplish its purpose unless a miracle happens and it's brought back to life. Jesus recognizes this reality in Luke chapter 6 in verse 33. He says, if you do good to those that do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Jesus says, you know, sinners do good to those that do good to them. There's a type of goodness that sinners can do, but it doesn't matter because they're dead. For example, if we were to all take a trip, which would be awesome, by the way, but I don't think it's financially feasible. Uh, But if we were all to take a trip to the Grand Canyon, right, and we were to all stand at the edge, and we were to see the chasm between us and the other side, which is miles long, and I were to say, listen, here's your task. Your task is to jump from this side of the Grand Canyon to the other side of the Grand Canyon. And you are, by, for some reason, I don't know, some kind of madness strikes you. But you believe me. And so all of you go as far back as you can. You run up to the edge and you jump as far as you possibly can. What's going to be the end result for every single person? (laughs) They will fall into the Grand Canyon and die because none of us can jump several miles. However, you'll notice something. Some of you will jump farther than others. (laughs) Some of you who are younger, right, and have maybe ran on a track team more recently, will make it farther. Some uh, who have back issues, like myself this morning, will not make it very far. But guess what? It doesn't matter because we all fall in and die. No one makes it to the other side. And that is our condition before God. We are dead and no one makes it to the other side. And then Paul goes on to further define what that deadness means. You are dead because you have violated God's law and that has caused you to fall short of his glory. And then he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. He says that you walked according to the course of this world because you were dead. Now, the word that he uses for course is the, word, the Greek word ion, which extends figuratively in the Greek language to include dominion, a kingdom, a throne. Jesus uses this word in Luke chapter 20 and verse 35. He says, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and that word age is the same word that is used for course. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And in this passage, Luke 20, 35, Jesus is using that word in order to describe God's eternal kingdom. But in this passage, Paul is using it to describe the kingdom of this world. He's saying you were dead in trespasses and sins, And the evidence of that is that you're a slave to the philosophies of this world. 
The kingdom of this world has taught you its value system and you were carried away with the philosophies of the kingdom of this world. Which, by the way, he goes on to say, you were carried along with the philosophies of the kingdom of this world, which agrees with the will of Satan. It says, you have walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And when you agree with the world, you agree with Satan, Paul says. This is exactly what Jesus says as well in John chapter 8 and verse 44, where he is rebuking the religious leaders of Israel, and he's saying, you are of your father the devil. And how does Jesus know that? Because the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, and there is no truth in him. How does Jesus identify those that are without Christ? He identifies them as fulfilling the lusts of the devil and agreeing with him. And Paul says that exact same thing here. You were enslaved to the philosophies of this world, to the power and the will of Satan, and it is his spirit that used to, right, because he's speaking to believers, it is his spirit, Satan's spirit, that used to work in you. Now, there are some spiritual truths that we look at and we say, I don't know exactly how that works. <laughs> and Satan and his armies of demons working their will through the unsaved is one of those things. Because the Bible does tell us that, honestly, most of the time when we sin, according to James, it is because you wanted to. It's because you're drawn away by your own lusts and your own desires. But there's also a sense in which being drawn away by your own lusts and your own desires is the will of Satan. And so Paul says, listen, you were a slave. Because you were dead, you were a slave to the kingdom of this world and to its prince who used to work his will in you. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. So it gets worse. Not only are you a slave to outside forces, but just as James describes, you're a slave to your own flesh. Because you are dead, your flesh desires dead things. It desires to wander further away from God. And you are focused on fulfilling your lusts. Because of all this, you are by your nature, Paul says, a child of wrath. He says, and you were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So what's the overarching problem of man? Well, Jesus tells us this in John chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What is the condition of man? The condition of man that he is, is that he is dead, carried along by the philosophies of this world, agreeing with the will of Satan, driven and enslaved by the desires of his own flesh. And the worst part of it is, is that people love that. They love their independence from God. That seems pretty bad. <laughs> that seems pretty hopeless. 
Thankfully, uh, Ephesians doesn't end <laughs> at the end of that sentence, because that concludes sentence number two. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just write those two sentences, but he goes on, and right after he describes mankind's initial state of hopelessness, he presents to us the power of God to resurrect us from spiritual death. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, But God, the greatest two words in all of the Bible, you were dead and enslaved, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and have made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. After hearing the description of uh, verses 1 to 3, you might wonder to yourself, who in the world would extend grace to people like that? Well, God would. According to 1 John 4, 8, it is because God is love. Now, the world gets it backwards, right? They teach us that love is God. That is not true. Love is not God, but God is love. And God, despite the obstacles, extends the invitation to mankind to bring them back into a relationship with himself. And so first of all, we see that the power of God is that he resurrected us by love. It says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. God loved us, and so he extended his mercy and his grace towards us. And this is the only way that man could be saved. Let's imagine that there is a man... And this man gets into his car and he begins driving down the street and he carelessly uh, begins texting while driving. And while he's doing so, he runs over a small child. Because of this, he, is, he goes to court. He's tried in court. He is sentenced to prison for manslaughter. He goes, he spends his time in prison and eventually he's released. And when he's released from prison, he still experiences guilt. Why? Because there is nothing that he can do in order to bring that child back. His mistake has cost a life, and there is no way that he can reconcile the relationship between that child's parents and himself. As terrible as he might feel, as much money as he might be able to give to them, as much service as he might be able to provide, there is nothing that he can do to reconcile to those parents. The only way that he can be reconciled to them is if they extend the invitation. The same is true for us and God. There is no way that we can work our way back into the presence of the Lord. But there is a way in which we can receive God's invitation. God is the one on the move in order to bring us back into a relationship with himself. And so he has made the move. He has resurrected us by love. And in verse 5, it tells us that he has resurrected us into life. It says, even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. Paul puts it this way in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ in, lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which is just another way of saying that God was on the move to bring me back into a relationship with himself. And when he did, right, it's no longer me living my way, but it's me living Christ's way. Because that's what it means to be in life. To be dead means to be outside of Christ. To be in life means to be in alignment with Christ. Your identity is with Christ. And so we have been resurrected into Christ. And we have been resurrected for a purpose. Paul tells us in verses 6 and 7, And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, so here's the reason. The reason that God resurrected you by love into life is for this. That in the ages to come, he might show you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For, for by grace you have been saved. You might think, what kind of purpose is that? <laughs> we have been redeemed. The word redeemed is actually a, a word that refers to the slave market. To be redeemed is when one person purchases somebody else and redeems them by that payment and sets them free. And you might think, well, God must have an amazing purpose for my life. And that's true. But it's unlike the rulers of this world. It's not like the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world, they might want you to be brought underneath them for the purpose that they might exercise their power over you. That's what Jesus says about the rulers of this world. He says, you guys, talking to his disciples, when you have authority, you should not exercise it like the kings of this world who seek to rule over people. God's rule is not like man's rule. When God rules, here's the purpose. God has re resurrected you by love into life so that he might show you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The purpose for which God has redeemed you is that you would see how awesome the riches of his grace are towards you forever. God gets all the glory, but you get all the benefit. The purpose for which God has raised us is that he would show us how great he is. This is what all of time it's working its way towards. We see this in Revelation chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. And we see that they were crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we worship the Lord forever, it will be on the basis that he has saved us and given us his riches and will continue to do so forever. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they all fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The kingdom of heaven will be unlike the kingdom of this world and that the kingdom of heaven will be based on the grace 
the mercy and the righteousness of God. And God gladly showing us the extent of the riches of his grace for all eternity. Now that's something for us to look forward to, but that's not the purpose that Paul writes this passage for. He says, this is the great power. This is the great purpose. But we want as many people to be invited as possible, right? And so Paul continues. He says that even after our resurrection in Christ, God just doesn't leave us here pointlessly. Because you might say, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to see the the riches of God's uh, eternal grace and mercy. I want to see that. I'm ready to be in the presence of the Lord. And God has left us here, though. (laughs) But he's not left you here pointlessly, right? He's not said, well, here's what you have to look forward to and just randomly bide your time, (laughs) right? No, God has a reason for why he does what he does. And so Paul says that after we have been resurrected, we have been left here and he has resurrected us so that he can empower us to live our new life for Christ and invite as many people as possible into the kingdom to enjoy the eternal riches of God provided to us by his grace for all eternity. And so we see thirdly that God's power enables us to live our new life for Christ. Starts in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might ask, well, what is my responsibility in salvation? Your responsibility in salvation is simply to respond through faith. It says that we have been saved by love into life for a purpose through faith. There's an illustration that, that floats around among pastors, and I don't know where it originates, as a lot of these random stories do, and I think that they're just made up, but it illustrates the point that a man uh, comes to a church service late, and he walks up to the preacher, and he says, listen, I, I, I know that I need the Lord. What must I do to be saved? What am I going to do? I know I missed the service. I know I've sinned. I know all that stuff. What can I do to be saved? And the preacher looks at him, and he says, you know, I got some bad news, and I got some good news. The bad news is, is that there's absolutely nothing you can do to be saved. But the good news is that it's already been done. What you need to do is just say, Lord, I believe it. Our new life is through faith. Our new life might not be easy, but it is through faith. It is through believing in what Christ has done for us that it's already been done in the riches of his, of his glorious grace. And lastly, he says that our new life is for good works. He says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as we started, there is absolutely nothing we can do because we're dead. 
There is nothing good we can do because good, by God's definition, is to live up to his standard. And there's no way that we can accomplish that. But through Christ, God has risen us to life. And through the power of Christ and his spirit working in and through us, we now have the ability to honor the Lord. So he says the purpose of your new life while you're here on earth is to participate in good works. Jesus tells us the reason for this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What's God's purpose in all of this? God's purpose is that he would receive all of the glory and by proxy, we receive all of the benefit. And since we are receiving the benefit of being empowered to life, God's desire and will for us is to go out and to live that life before men, not so that they would see you and say, wow, isn't Pastor Brandon such a great guy? Isn't Pastor Bryce such a great guy? And if you really got to know us, see, uh, we, have, we have some problems. <laughs> but it's so that people would say, wow, they were pretty bad before. That's the purpose. <laughs> Those guys were kind of losers, just like all of us, right? Because that's Paul's point. We were all dead. We were all losers. But so that the world would look at us and say, wow, those guys were, all those people at Chapel Hill Baptist Church were kind of a mess. But something happened to them. The basic premise of the gospel is that it changes lives. And Jesus says, so that when your life is changed, your light would shine before men, and that everyone would see and say, wow, there is no way that those people at Chapel Hill Baptist accomplished what happened there. That's got to be God. This is the reason that Jesus was sent into the world. He was sent into the world that he might show us the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Towards the end of the Gospels, Jesus then says to his disciples, now I want you to go and show everybody who I am. As a matter of fact, as we continue to study uh, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul will describe the church as the body of Christ, the representatives of Christ. And we accomplish our purpose only when we're aligned with our head, which is Jesus Christ. And so what's Paul's point? Paul's point is, starting all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 15, I want you to know God. I want you to know the wealth of his riches. I want you to know the power that he has. And it's the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that gave him dominion over everything because of his work on the cross. It's that same power that found you dead. It's that same power that brought you back to life by love through grace, through faith, and it is for that purpose that you now go out and you live a life of good works so that you would show everybody what Christ looks like. Remember, we have sinned. We've fallen short of the target. The target is to be like God. To be brought back to life means that we now have the ability to, in a small way while we're here on earth, 
reflect the glory of God because we have been brought back to life. That we would live a life of good works that they might see us and say, you know what? I need to know that God because that is power. And so with our new life in Christ, we have the privilege to live a new life for the glory of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raised you from the dead. And now you are called to live as Christ's representative. You are called, as Paul puts it, to be his workmanship, his masterpiece. In the Greek, it is the the same word from which we get the word poem. You are his perfectly orchestrated masterpiece for the purpose that you would put his glory on display.